You're listening to Boston Needs to Know on WBCA 102.9 FM, a show highlighting local Boston news. On March 17th, the sounds of rebel rifles and drums were heard at the annual Evacuation Day ceremonies at Dorchester Heights in Dorchester. On this day in 1776, the British troops were forced to leave Boston after General George Washington, the first U.S. president, successfully fortified Dorchester Heights with cannons and heavy artillery to attack the British warships. Seeing these heavy guns and artillery aimed at his soldiers, General William Howe of the British Army and his troops left in haste never to return. Evacuation Day commemorates the first major American military victory in the American Revolutionary War and is celebrated in Massachusetts with reenactments, essay contests, and visits to historically significant sites. As we approach the 250th anniversary of the events at Dorchester Heights, we are reminded that the American Revolution remains unfinished. While the revolutionaries of March 1776 fought for their own vision of liberty and representation, every generation since, including our own, has continued to grapple with these fundamental principles. It is our shared responsibility to learn from the challenges and accomplishments so we can be more inclusive and honest in telling the stories of our past, while also better equipping ourselves to carry on their work. 800 soldiers and 1,200 workers and volunteers who didn't know each other came together, worked together, and strategically fortified these heights. And as you look around, you can see great views of the city of Boston, uh, but the cannon's armaments were directed at Boston Harbor, where the British fleet was stationed. When the British awoke the next morning, they were absolutely shocked at what the dedicated American colonists had accomplished and left Boston on this date, 1776, without a shot being fired and without blood being shed. This set the foundation for our eventual victory in the American Revolution. And today's an important day for us to remember. Evacuation Day marks the first American victory in the war for independence. Henry Knox brought cannon from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston. They were placed here on evacuation on Dorchester Heights. They were placed here on Dorchester Heights where they forced the British to evacuate after a siege that had lasted about 16 months. So the British military had occupied Boston, their fleet was in the harbor, but with the Americans having possession of these heights and having cannon here, the British were forced to retreat, something the British Army had never done. This was the first colonial outpost the British gave up, and they just sent a big army here to hold Boston, but then they have to evacuate it because of the cannon placed here, and because of the citizens of Boston who wanted to get their town back. So this is what was happening in 1776. Without March 17th of 1776, you don't have a July 4th of 1776. Proof that the Americans could win the war and drive out an invading force. On Sunday morning, March 20th, the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center was green from head to toe as Massachusetts politicians returned to South Boston for the first time in three years for a St. Patrick's Day breakfast. They celebrated the feast of Ireland's patron saint, St. Patrick, 
with a morning of melodic Celtic music and Irish dance and wit. Few politicians escaped being the brunt of some good-natured jokes, but they also talked about the Irish contribution to this country. And host Nick Collins asked that we all stand united behind the men and women of Ukraine who are fighting for freedom in their homeland, just as Bostonians did 246 years ago at Dorchester Heights. Among those in attendance were Governor Charlie Baker and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. The breakfast was canceled in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic, which also forced the event to be held virtually in 2021. It would have been my great-grandmother on my mother's side came over and her dad wanted to marry an old farmer and she said, I'm going to America. So the ties were cut off. He said, take your dowry, don't ever come back. Now, they came over to a different country. They came over to a hustling, bustling America, you know, in its early stages of the 18, probably 50s and 60s. And today, you see the world is so changed. I mean... We've all just gone through two years of a pandemic and we don't know what's in store of us for the future. But as far as, you know, being one of eight children and to think about the contributions, it's like that's what America was always about, is to give people opportunity and to let people just kind of grow into what they're doing. And we know that the Irish is uh, in that area has certainly been successful and uh, made some whether it's in politics or whether it's in even comedy or whether it's in service industry, the Irish have played a big role in America. You know, the cultural uh, contributions, the political contributions, right, the, you know, building up of Massachusetts industry in so many ways, uh, you know, the contributions to my family, uh, you know, it's something that I take tremendous pride in, right, that uh, on my mother's side of the family, uh, we have immigration from Ireland, on my father's side, from China, from Costa Rica, so, you know, it's just watching all of those waves of immigration happen over the generations in the United States. I think it provides a, um, a common cultural thread, right, that each wave can understand the wave that is coming next, right, and know what they've been going through. And so, you know, even now, right, in the political contributions of the Irish community, I see so much solidarity um, among immigrant populations, and that is really beautiful. Despite my last name, uh, people should know that my mother is Irish. She's a Cassidy, and I studied in Ireland. As a matter of fact, when I was a young man, I took Irish step dancing lessons with Mrs. Moran's troupe, uh, something of which I'm very proud today uh, and speaks to um, uh, my, my Irishness, you know. Um, being Irish in Boston is something very special. And wherever you go in this country or in this, in, in, in this world, people know if you're from Boston, you've got to be somehow affiliated with the Irish. And that's something of which I'm very proud and I'm proud to be from Boston as well. The contribution to, of the Irish to the city of Boston is based on hard work, it's based on love of city, love of country, sacrifice, service, whether that's in the U.S. military, whether that's as a school teacher, but it's about giving back, making our city better for the next generation, making our country better for the next generation too. It's about working together and supporting each other. We are so lucky here in Boston to have such a long and beautiful relationship and connection to Ireland, but also to celebrate the many contributions of the Irish and Irish Americans over decades and generations here. The story of Irish immigrants to this country and to our city really is the story of all of us, of courage, perseverance, coming here for freedom, doing everything you can to take care of yourselves and your family, and persevering in spite of a lot of hardship and discrimination.
On March 21st, riders looking to go from downtown Boston to Union Square in Somerville on one trolley ride were in for some good news. They will no longer have to worry about hopping on a shuttle bus from Lechmere because Union Square Station and a brand new Lechmere Station opened on Monday morning for MBTA Green Line riders. The project is under the $2.3 billion budget that began work in 2018 and will include the creation of five more stations. By the end of the year, these new stations will be added and with the four and a half miles of new track will extend all the way up to College Avenue in Medford. Before riders board at the new stations, they will have to validate their Charlie cards and Charlie tickets at a vending machine. The T has posted videos online to explain how the new system will work. This represents the, the culmination of years of really difficult work, both on the policy side, on the funding side, and on the construction side. And now what do we end up with? We end up with a brand new station here in Lechmere, replacing what you see across the street, which was over 100 years old. It's fully accessible. It's going to be able to house the next generation of Green Line cars. We've got bike storage for 250 bicycles. And it's got a new and expanded busway that connects with the station. The city of Somerville is the most densely populated city in New England, but until today, most of its residents have had no access to rail transit. Before today, mass transit in Somerville meant taking a diesel bus, a bus that dumps huge amounts of pollution into the air and soil of our neighborhoods. The same filth that causes climate change around the globe also creates serious public health problems locally, problems that hit disproportionately in black and brown communities. Fixed rail is fast and reliable, and it dramatically cuts down on pollution. And when it is done right, infrastructure projects like this let us tackle environmental justice head on. The green in the green line is a money line. This station will connect workers to jobs, to businesses, and communities to the larger regional economy. And it will also significantly reduce vehicle trips and fossil fuel emissions, which benefits the environment while relieving traffic congestion and providing new transportation options in historically underserved areas. Now, just last week, the U.S. Census Bureau released data showing that folks in Massachusetts have the fourth longest commute times in the country and the third highest use of public transportation. So the Green Line Extension Project will support 50,000 passenger trips per day once completed. So the need is here. And we need to continue expanding these transit, transit options that our neighbors have been calling on that will improve their lives and the benefit of our communities at the same time. On March 22nd, Mayor Michelle Wu, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and former Mayor Kim Janey met at Roxbury Community College to discuss the continuation of work on free bus fares for the MBTA. Starting the beginning of this month, Mayor Wu made the bus routes 23, 28, and 29 free to the public for a two-year pilot program. Since the 28 bus became fare-free in August of last year, ridership has increased to over 90% of pre-pandemic levels, which makes it the most popular bus route on the entire MBTA system. 
The mayor said that the continuation of the free 23, 28, and 29 buses is linked to equity and economic mobility, as well as climate justice and reducing the exposure to pollution. She also maintained that no fair transportation frees up the money formerly spent on getting around to being used for day-to-day living and a better quality of life. The difference between a city being a place that you call home and that you make a life in, that you, that you have roots in and feel connected and a part of, has everything to do with your ability to navigate it. Everything. You know, were it not for uh, public transit, so many families would not have the opportunity to experience um, the vibrant arts and culture, you know, in this city, to um, access our green space and so many other things. So yes, this is about meeting the basic needs of people in, their most, in the most utility sense. But it is also about that which I just spoke about, the real heartbeat and verve and pulse of a city. And that is true livability when you can just get from point A to point B. So public transit is a public good and we have to invest in it and treat it as such. Looking at Blue Hill Avenue and the communities of Dorchester, Roxbury and Mattapan and making sure that we could offer fare free transit last year and that that pilot has now been expanded by Mayor Wu to continue the fare free 28 bus, to add the 23 bus, and to add the 29 bus. This is a game changer. And you heard why. You heard from students who talk about this in real time and what it means for them and their families. This is so important. And it demonstrates what can happen when we work together, when we work with the advocates, when we work with each other uh, in elected government when we are making sure that we are doing what is best for our community and those who have been marginalized for far too long. Despite many, many years of uh, being told that it might be too hard, too expensive, too complicated, it turns out that when we choose to make an investment in our people, in our residents, and make it so that everyone fundamentally has the right to access every opportunity in Boston, that's how we actually get to a city for everyone. And so this couldn't be more important. I'm so grateful that we have federal funds available uh, for our recovery that we are putting to good use with this. These are the communities along these bus routes have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. These are key economic corridors for our city. And this is where we are already starting to see, and we'll just see it um, amplify, the results of our investments in opening up the opportunities and the, the jobs and the social um, activities, the recovery, this benefits the entire city of Boston when our communities have more access to our city. On March 23rd, Mayor Michelle Wu, with many LGBTQ organizational heads by her side, announced the creation of the Office of LGBTQ Advancement. The office was established to empower, protect, and promote the rights, dignity, and advancement of Boston's LGBTQ residents. The executive director for the new office will be Mary Angeli Solis Severa, the current Chief of Equity and Inclusion. The office will partner with other city departments to ensure the opportunity gaps are closing for LGBTQ residents. The mayor has been a consistent champion of LGBTQ rights 
through promoting the work of many of their organizations striving to ensure that Boston is a city for everyone. For too long, members of our LGBTQ plus community have had to invent systems of safety and support for themselves while those in power have looked on or away. For too long, they've needed to find resilience in the absence of protection. And for too long, too many of us outside the community failed to act. But the pursuit of justice cannot fall only to those impacted most directly by injustice because the strength and safety of all of our communities is our collective responsibility. Boston's LGBTQ community deserves an office that affirms and uplifts and defends the safety of all, the opportunities and the dreams of all. This office should connect them to services and resources, advocate and evolve alongside our community. Boston's queer community deserves leadership and representation that reflects the diversity of identity and lived experiences. That's why today, I'm excited to announce Boston's first ever Office of LGBTQ Advancement. As a transgender woman living here in Boston who has experienced discrimination in the workplace, um, in transportation, in healthcare, it means that there's accountability. Having this office means that there's somewhere for me to turn to, for my community to, community to turn to when we need support, when we need someone to back us up and say, we are here for you, when we need action to be done. We know that there's an office here and that there's people who are willing to do the work with us and not just put that work on us, but willing to take it and carry it with us through each day. So before this office, you know, we have nowhere to go in City Hall besides the liaison, which has only limited capacity for issues that are facing our community. So for us, this means that now when something is going on with one of our members or are being discriminated against or whatever the case may be, we have a direct office to go to and to be able to assist us with these matters. But furthermore, this office will be able to assist in so many other different matters as well, not just discrimination. It could be a housing issue, a health issue. It could be a policy issue in that the community will now have somewhere to say we have a space at City Hall that is actually going to listen to our concerns, but not just listen, but help us address those as well. It feels uh, very empowering. It's not the first time, however, my waking up and realizing that justice is on the horizon rodeo, um, to understand of what it meant as a young kid uh, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, to understand when marriage equality was passed here in the Commonwealth, to understand in one minute life changed, uh, to understand the day that the DSM erased 81 words that took being gay from being something that you could be discriminated against and was a mental disorder to where you are now normal. So that these moments are evocative, they're continuous, uh, and they're inspiring but they're also depressing because there's so many more that need to happen. But I think about all my sisters who are trans, etc. there's a level of exhaustion that comes with having to think about what do I have today, what do I have to do today to keep myself safe, to keep my family safe. And so when you are changing the narrative, the trajectory of a relationship, a relationship between community and the city, there's an opportunity for the people that for too long have been carrying this weight, this burden that should not be theirs, to finally feel relief and actually access the opportunities that they have access to. Instead of just always focusing about survival, we can get to a place of thriving, which is really the goal here.